Welcome. We're so glad you came this afternoon. We have another great program. The library is so wonderful to do this kind of thing. I hope all of you are friends of the library, which I am. I'm Suzanne Freeman. And if you're not a friend, I'm going to sign you up because it is imperative that we start advocating for this wonderful library. This is the Brown Bag Green Book Series, and you should be on their mailing list. If you're not, there's some information at this back table that Emily will give to you, and we'll keep you abreast of everything that's coming down the pike. The next one is going to be September the 29th, the last Wednesday, and I see the speaker over on my left, Madeline Rojera, and she's going to talk about a book that we all need to embrace as a Bible. It's called Green Metropolis, While Living Smaller, Living Closer, and Driving Less Are the Keys to Sustainability, and it's by David Owen. Uh, Will Skelton is going to introduce our speaker today, and again, we are so glad you came. Well, I would just say at the outset that uh, Emily Ellis has done a wonderful job of setting up these brown bag luncheons. Just (laughs) very good. Uh, Consistently, people who have been outstanding in their fields, people who have been doers, and people who have accomplished uh, a lot of stuff. And today is no exception. Don Barger uh, certainly fits those requirements. I first met Don in the early 1990s when he came to Knoxville to open the uh, a local southeastern regional office of National Parks and Conservation Association. Uh, and if you don't know about it, he may talk about it, but National Parks and Conservation Association is an incredible organization. I'm on their regional advisory board uh, and know what they do, but uh, essentially they are the group that works with the Park Service and sometimes looks over the shoulders uh, as a watchdog for the Park Service about what they're doing and for our national parks and national park units. And we're just incredibly fortunate to have that office and Don and his staff here in Knoxville looking over, as far as I'm concerned, the best national park, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, But anyway, Don came here in the early 1990s and has truly, as I indicated, made a difference in the Knoxville, East Tennessee, southeastern regional area since then. So many issues. I've got a list here that uh, Don worked on. Things like, oh, the Topoco uh, lands, about 10,000 acres that was acquired on the south side of the park. Don was really involved with that. Other issues way back, like stopping a strip mine uh, right near the, uh, the Cumberland Gap National Historic Park, stopping a dam that would affect the water quality for the Obed Wild and Scenic Rivers, just on and on, the Martin Luther King Memorial Site in uh, Georgia. So many issues they've worked on uh, and have made a difference on, and we're, as I say, fortunate to have them. By way of background, before Don came here and did all the wonderful work he's done, he was an organizer in the coal fields in the Cumberlands, and then he was also a policy analyst for the Environmental Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., He graduated with a degree in architecture from the University of Tennessee, lived in Norris. And on a personal note, he turned 60 on Saturday, so you can all congratulate him. (laughs) And while I'm talking about birthdays, I'll go ahead, and this is more of a personal thing. Uh, We've got several people in the audience here who have worked on the Smokies. Don has worked a long time, but there's one guy, Ray Payne, sitting right there, turns 80 on Sunday. He's involved... He's, he's been involved in every single issue I know about on the Smokies since he came to Knoxville. So we're fortunate to have people like Ray and Don. So, Don, we look forward to hearing you talk about it. So, Ray, you feel old now? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, I want to go through this book, Rewilding the World. How many people here have actually read this book? Surprise me. Somebody. Okay. Good. Well, I want, I want to start with this. Possibly in our intuitive perceptions, which may be truer than our science and less impeded by words than our philosophies, we realize the indivisibility of the earth. Its soils, mountains, rivers, forests, climate, plants, and animals, and respect it collectively, not only as a useful servant, but as a living being, vastly less alive than ourselves in degree, but vastly greater than ourselves in time and space. A being that was old when the morning stars sang together and when the last of us had been gathered unto his fathers will still be young. Uh, the reason I start there is that those were the words of Aldo Leopold in 1923. Uh, so the concepts in this book are not brand new, but the ways in which we are beginning to put them together as a society uh, are. As our author, Caroline Fraser puts it quite simply, in this era of connection, we have learned that everything is interdependent and there are no spare parts. Rewilding the World is essentially about the work that Aldo Leopold began at his Sand County farm early in the last century. I'm going to walk through the book in outline form, and I'm going to use the author's words uh, quite often. First and foremost, you will have to be crazy to read this book all the way through from end to end. Uh, I'm hoping when I get through today, many of you are and will, uh, because it's a very good book which presents no new research, no new facts, and no new ideas. Uh, but much of it was new to me, and I think it would be new to you. What it does and does well is provide a whirlwind tour through the last 30 years of conservation biology, clearly explains its critical importance, its applicability, and the likely consequences of ignoring it. The book gives numerous case studies, examples, uh, and it gives hope. It clearly plots a path that we could, and Caroline Fraser maintains convincingly, must follow. Uh, how many of you were here last month for John Nolt's presentation on Fast Food Nation? Good. Well, you'll remember we discussed the fact there are two overriding issues of climate change and population growth that mean that we are most likely going to see some severe and at this point maybe irretrievable impacts that will dramatically affect human life and non-human life on this planet. This book describes the work that has, is, and should be going on to preserve as much of the Earth's biodiversity of life as possible in the face of whatever impacts we experience and why it's crucial to do so. At the first week of this month, the U.S. Senate boldly failed to act on any kind of energy legislation. And in response, the author Bill McKibben wrote an article in which he laid out a number of, of facts that I want to put out. According to NOAA, the planet has just come through the warmest decade, the warmest 12 months, the warmest six months, and the warmest April, May, and June on record. Nine nations so far have set all-time records, being topped by poor Pakistan uh, at just a hair under 130 degrees, as if they didn't have enough trouble. You can set your oven to 130 degrees. The third fact was the one that really struck me. A new study from Canadian researchers has shown that the warmer seawater has reduced phytoplankton, the base of the marine food chain, by 40 percent since 1950, meaning in my lifetime, as of Saturday. <laughs> Society develops at the margins. This book describes a new way of thinking about conservation 
that has now gone from the margins to the mainstream. These are not utopian ideas, but current ongoing research. I don't know how many of you all saw in Sunday's Knoxville News Sentinel the article about the Jaguar work that's going on in Venezuela. Uh, It's a very good article, which I'll have up here. Important disclaimer, I am not a biologist. I am a policy-oriented person, so when we have questions, those will need to be answered potentially by others. Michael Soule, one of the fathers of rewilding, has said, the greatest impediment to rewilding is the unwillingness to imagine it. This book describes what's going on worldwide, not only to imagine, but to implement the elements of a sustainably living planet. First, I have to say that I have found it useful in trying to describe what something is, what is rewilding, to start with what it is not. This is my PowerPoint for the day. Conservation biology is the day-to-day work of holding on to a living planet, the science of ecosystems, and a guidebook for a future world that functions. The central purpose of conservation biology is to preserve biological diversity. So in order to accept the importance of either conservation biology or of rewilding, we have to accept the critical nature of maintaining biological diversity. The answer to losing species cannot be, so what? So, Fraser begins her discussion there. If current trends continue, scientists predict that a third of all plants and animals could disappear by 2050, including the systems that they support. Three-quarters of the world's food supply comes from 12 plant species, but those species are dependent on thousands of others, pollinators like insects, bats, birds, soil microbes, and as we're finding out in the Gulf, aquatic microbes, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, fungi, and a number of other things that we're really not tracking very well. And we are just beginning to understand these elements. Uh, And as we've seen with the all-taxi-biodiversity inventory that's going on in the Smokies, we don't even know uh, the majority of what's there. Discussions about conservation often devolve to calls for balance. Uh, I maintain that restoring balance does not mean keeping oneself upright on the road to ruin. We have to change our thinking about the natural processes that created our world from thinking about them as obstacles to overcome to thinking about them as essential to our continued existence. Frazier lists the three basic elements of rewilding as cores, corridors, and carnivores. Core areas, national parks, wilderness areas, our our national forests, wildlife preserves. We have a wealth here with Great Smoky Mountains National Park, all of our national forests and wilderness areas that we have, Cumberland Gap, Big South Fork, and a lot of other places. In 2016, the national parks will be celebrating their centennial. The 1916 Organic Act that created the park system was an act of Congress that said the purpose is to conserve the scenery, and they started there, conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and wildlife therein, and provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. Aldo Leopold in 1919 said, our ability to perceive quality in nature begins as in art with the pretty. It expands through successive stages of the beautiful to values as yet uncaptured by language. We are at a point now in our history where we are having to understand new values to things that we may have created for other reasons. Um, The Wildlands Project essentially originated 
the idea of rewilding in the early 90s. They argued that wilderness areas and national parks have not protected the full biological heritage of the U.S. because they have been chosen primarily for their scenic and recreational values, not for their ecological values. However, far from tossing them out, their proposal is we need to protect them, expand them, and connect them. Uh, So core areas, while essential, are not sufficient to protect species. Uh, I had the opportunity yesterday to talk to uh, Michael Fromm, who many of you will recognize as the author of Strangers in High Places. Uh, He also wrote a book called Regreening the National Parks, which he is currently updating, which is why he was calling me uh, about it. But this is essentially the same sort of process just in relation to our national parks. So this is something that has been ongoing uh, for some time. When a dam was built in 1990 in Venezuela, biologists got a chance to study the resulting islands that were created by the lake. The predators, jaguars and pumas, had fled the rising waters, leaving only smaller creatures behind, isolated on the islands. Over a very short period of time, normally very social howler monkeys were living alone, attacking one another and killing their own infants. Plants were thrown out of balance, thorny, toxic plants took over most of the areas. In a 2001 article in Science Magazine, biologists documented that in 10 years, over 75% of the vertebrate species had been lost from the smaller islands where the predators uh, were absent. When the lake water was subsequently let down for maintenance, the monkeys fled back to the lands of their predators. The next element is corridors, taking these core areas which we know aren't sufficient to protect biological life and figuring out how these connectors work. The dangers of habitat fragmentation are pretty well known, uh, but it's not just migration, uh, but also dispersal, competition, breeding, genetic viability. Isolated populations become inbred, susceptible to reduced fertility, genetic disorders, and immune system problems. There are a lot of types of corridors. Obviously, the very best is a very large contiguous area, but you also have linear habitats, wide swaths of habitat permitting daily and seasonal movements, stepping stones, matrices, mosaics of habitats, ecological networks combining a lot of forms of connectivity. Uh, Here in the southern Appalachians, we have such a system with all of our public lands, Blue Ridge Parkway and Appalachian Trail, too narrow corridors, but connectors nonetheless. Uh, They can be stopovers in mountain meadows where hummingbirds could refuel on their way to Mexico, hedgerows alongside strawberry crops in California, windbreaks in North Dakota. Sometimes creating corridors just means removing barriers. Uh, NPCA is working on a project out in Yellowstone and the Paradise Valley, which goes north out of Yellowstone. Uh, It is migratory uh, for the pronghorn antelope. Pronghorn antelope are pretty good jumpers, but when they come to one of those unnatural fences, their tendency is to go under it. Uh, If the bottom strand of wire is barbed wire, they get caught. Uh, We have a person who's out in the field right now working with ranchers to try to get them to just replace the bottom wire with a, a, a standard strand of wire. And in so doing, the cows stay in, the pronghorn move through, uh, and both are facilitated on the same piece of property without, anybody's, without anyone being disadvantaged by that. 
That's part of a larger project called Yellowstone to Yukon. That's kind of the first large-scale imagining of a large-scale landscape project in this country. Not big on implementation, but it's really helped us promote the visionary potential of connectivity. So who else likes wildlife crossings, insurance adjusters? This is from the book. You'll love this. In the United States, for example, deer vehicle collisions alone occur over one and a half million times a year, costing some 200 lives and $8.8 billion annually. In Canada, as a result of building two wildlife bridges and 22 underpasses, providing passage across the Trans-Canadian Highway, scientists have found that 11 species of large animals have used the crossing over 104,000 times since 1996. Wildlife collisions have been reduced over 80% and those involving elk and deer by 96%. And even the losers of such collisions like frogs can use them too. Uh, interestingly, some of our best opportunities for preserving life come from corridors that are, have been associated with death. The former Iron Curtain is becoming the green belt in Europe. Cuts through virtually every distinct ecological biome in Germany, creating an environmental cross-section of 109 key habitats. Interestingly, for wildlife, particularly birds, reptiles, and mammals that don't adapt well to intensive agriculture, the death zone, as it was called, was anything but that. Not even herbicides ruined it. The curious thing is that it is less polluted than the surrounding farmland uh, less damaged by the fertilizers and chemicals that were used on the agricultural land around it. Another irony, one of the most promising potential quarters on the planet today is the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Imagine a place, although there are thousands and thousands of landmines and there is the occasional kaboom when an animal steps on one, no one has set foot in it for 55 years. Uh, it's two and a half miles wide and 155 five miles long, and it contains most of the biological uh, diversity of the entire Korean peninsula. Uh, and it has been eliminated from an awful lot of other places. So people are looking at and looking for opportunities like that around the world. The third element of rewilding is carnivores. And the principal tool here generally for us is reintroduction. In many places, it's preservation. Classic example that most people are familiar with is the reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone. The last wolf had been eliminated from the park in 1926. A study that was done in the 1990s of quaking aspen in the park found that they had continuously regenerated from the late 1700s up until 1930, read four years after the last wolf was killed, uh, and then from 1930 forward, had, all regeneration had ceased. They had gone from 4 to 6 percent of the biomass of the park to 1 percent of the biomass of the park, and they were trying to figure it out. Well, as it turns out, elk will generally not go into something like an aspen grove if there's wolves around because it makes you vulnerable to predation. With the wolves gone, they no longer had that fear. The elks uh, browsed down all of the aspen. The beaver population collapsed. The dams and wetlands that they create, the amphibians, the animals, and the, the aquatic plants that depend on that, all of their populations started going down. The amount of shade along the side of the stream was reduced, which trout need. The trout population started going down. In all, 16 species of vertebrates were affected by wolf predation. So what happened when the wolf was reintroduced? The coyote population dropped. The elk wouldn't go in the aspen groves anymore. 
they started recovering. The beaver population stabilized. The stream habitats recovered. Uh, the trout started coming back, which made their ultimate predator, the fly fisherman, very happy. <laughs> Grizzly bears, who can run a wolf away from a kill, suddenly had a lot more food. They started doing better, as did the bald eagles, golden eagles, other carrion uh, birds. So the Yellowstone wolf reintroduction was a biological success and an absolute political failure. Completely opposite of what happened with the red wolf reintroduction here at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We had a biological failure and a political success. In Yellowstone, 14 wolves were introduced in 95. There's now 400 in the greater Yellowstone area uh, and 1,500 throughout uh, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. Politically, what happened in 2008, the wolf was delisted as an endangered species, and it took 90 days for 10% of the population to be decimated by hunters. Uh, 130 wolves uh, were taken out in, in the first 90 days. Uh, so obviously, the populace was not bought into the continued presence of the wolf. For the red wolf reintroduction here, we didn't have enough of a habitat. It failed for the right reasons. Uh, but politically, with Front Runner, the, the film that was done, the posters, the school curriculums, and two years of, of work to engage the public, uh, my organization and another put up a red wolf indemnity fund that brought the Farm Bureau in. Anyone that had a predation from a red wolf will pay you for it. Everybody was happy. The only question people had was, where do we go to hear them how? And it didn't work, but it didn't work for the right reasons, and they were biological. So the basic elements of successful rewilding projects are laid out. You've got to get the biology right. You have to get the sociology and the politics right. And you have to get the public engaged in the protection. As government agencies and administrations failed, private interest, non-governmental organizations, and individuals stepped in. This book details a number of projects in South and Central America, Africa, Europe, Asia, projects that succeeded in varying degrees based on the situation they had and how well they addressed those three principles. Uh, we don't have time to look at them uh, at all in any detail, but they include the uh, Paseo Pantera, Path of the Panther in Central America, uh, the, the Pantanal in Brazil, Bolivia, and Paraguay, which is sort of a stepping stone habitat between two um, habitats for jaguars, and the populations of both of those depend on the occasional male jaguar going from one group to the other for genetic diversity. One of them was completely surrounded by pasture land, which jaguars will not go into. And so they figured out along the riparian and riverine areas ways to connect them to uh, continue the viability of both those populations. First step is always research. This is not bean counting that's going on with the all tax of biodiversity inventory in the Smokies. The case studies presented in the book detail a lot of also creative strategies. Uh, for instance, there was a northern jaguar uh, project on the U.S.-Mexican border that was doing really good work until one of the two countries decided to put up a fence uh, through the middle of part of it. Uh, but the defenders of wildlife had been working uh, there for quite some time. And what they were doing there was not what we did in the red wolf reintroduction of paying for predations. They started paying local ranchers for photographs of northern jaguars. They were so rare at that time, they had just sort of been rediscovered. 
Uh, the author even recounts a tale of going in and having dinner in the home of a Mexican rancher, and the guy had a photograph of, shall we say, the hindquarters of a jaguar up on his living room wall. He was so proud of the fact that he had gotten one of those photos, and it had fed his family for a month. The book also describes the idea of creating peace parks, natural areas that extend across and attempt to ameliorate often disastrous effects of national boundaries. Uh, however, linking the success of your biology to the politics between two countries also has its obvious pitfalls. There are lots of examples from Africa. Wow, 20% of the land mass of the earth, 14 times the size of Greenland, although our Mercator maps distort the living daylights out of that. The Sahara Desert alone, that region of Africa, is about the size of China. Uh, it's a land of over 700 million people, about 70% uh, or half of whom li- live on the equivalent of 70 cents a day. And it's a land where any efforts by an outsider have to seek to overcome the abuses of past colonialism. Uh, one such effort that has happened in Africa that has worked is what's called a conservancy movement. Communities in vital conservation areas are set up in conservancies where people essentially own the rights to the wildlife and their economic well-being depends on the ecotourism and on a levy on any animals that are taken by hunters. They're also given information by biologists about how to keep those populations viable and healthy and therefore their economy is sustainable. As Aldo Leopold, again, once noted, breakfast comes before ethics. The book goes through some really wonderful examples in Namibia and Kenya about how these conservancies have worked. When uh, Namibia freed itself in 1990 from the apartheid government of South Africa, it became the first and only country on earth to write conservation into its constitution pledging to safeguard, and I quote, ecosystems, essential ecological processes, and biological diversity for the benefit of all Namibians, both present and future, is in their constitution. Several intergovernmental efforts in in Africa are aimed at restoring the incredibly far-ranging elephant to its historic migration patterns. Why? Elephants are the fertilizers of Africa. Uh, I, I quote, conservation biologists consider them keystone herbivores, essential to the maintenance of forested areas and open savanna grasslands. Their huge appetites and inefficient digestion, they digest only about 40% of what they eat, account for the tremendous impact that they have on the environment. Up to one-third of the tree seeds in West Africa must pass through an elephant's gut in order to germinate. So... They need to continue to move and do what they do, right? For for anyone that's really deeply interested in the mechanics and the pitfalls of landscape-level planning, these case studies, which take up the bulk of the middle of this book, uh, are incredibly instructive. We don't have time to go through them. But if you really want to see the mechanics of how these things work, fail to work, and how people then change their tactics and move forward, it's laid out in really great detail. I'm going to jump to Nepal. Efforts to reestablish functional habitats for tigers, elephants, rhinos, and other wildlife in an area known as the Terai Arc landscape have been confounded by the political unrest that's racked that nation. A century ago, we had 100,000 tigers in the wild, now about 1,500. However, in the midst of that turmoil, the author has found reason to believe that the people there fully understand conservation biology. Uh, She came upon, in Kathmandu, a Nepalese board game called Bagchal, in which the two players are goats and tigers. 
And the goats basically play their game defensively by not leaving an opening anywhere where a tiger can access them. And if goats completely surround a tiger so that the tiger doesn't have anywhere to move, the goats win the game. So it literally is a board game that shows a complete understanding of, of the concepts of what they're dealing with. Frazier concludes her world tour back on our side of the planet. On the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica, an effort to set aside a rich biological preserve, which is now Corcovado National Park, almost faltered when the organizations involved failed to properly engage local people in its preservation. What was been called fortress conservation did not and does not work. Conservancies have worked particularly when they granted legal rights and responsibility to the people who lived there. They function best when they include law enforcement, but there are also certain situations, wars, conflicts, etc., when community conservation was not enough. Frazier concludes, these issues are unresolved. This is a work in progress that's still moving forward. At the end of the book, Frazier discusses an area of work that is probably very, very relevant to our country, that is restoration ecology. The Curtis Prairie in Wisconsin at 75, it's almost as old as Ray, is the world's first and oldest experiment in ecological restoration. At the heart of this effort is the Sand County farmland restoration begun by Aldo Leopold. Uh, He would not be surprised to learn that the restoration is still incomplete and imperfect. It's important to distinguish between reclamation, rehabilitation, and restoration. Reclamation is converting land perceived as wasteland to some form of agricultural or recreational productivity. Rehabilitation is is a beneficial treatment that allows some ecological recovery. True restoration is the reestablishment of a completely functional ecosystem containing sufficient biodiversity so that it could continue to mature and evolve over time. Whether you have what was originally there or not, it is a self-sustaining system at that point. Interestingly, among the more reluctant supporters of restoration ecology has been the world of conservation organizations like mine. Uh, There's always a fear in some groups that talking about restoration confuses our message to the public that we must preserve important areas before they're lost and that once lost, they're gone forever. Hurts our fundraising, right? We are currently having the same debate nationally among groups that support increased funding for natural resource adaptation funding to respond to climate change. Are we giving up trying to reverse climate change to try to get the funding to make sure that we can adapt to what we know is inevitable? Clearly, restoration is not a substitute for preservation, but it may be an essential element in preserving living systems. We're going to have to find the maturity to say that we must preserve what we can and that restored areas may be vital and understand that those efforts are complementary and not competing concepts. Fraser's final examination takes us back to Costa Rica and looks at the work of Dan Jansen and his wife, Winnie Halwich. If any of you were involved in the creation of the All Tax of Biodiversity Inventory up in the Smokies, you'll remember Dan Jansen. He was at the first few meetings. He's been on the, the board, and he highlighted the successes and failures of the projects that he worked on in Costa Rica. Costa Rica protects about 25% of its land for purposes of conservation. By comparison, the U.S. strictly protects less than 6% of our land. It has become somewhat of a holy grail for understanding biodiversity. We don't know how many species are there. Uh, There are 1,300 species of orchids alone. 
Jansen estimates that in one of the park areas, an area about the same size of New York, there may be over 235,000 species, or roughly 2.4% of the biodiversity on the Earth. Most conservation strategies necessarily seek to remove destructive cattle from land that is being conserved. Jansen brought them in. He looked at the functions he needed in the landscape. He wanted to restore pasture to dry forest, where the principal problem was not cattle, but fire. He had hired some locals to help suppress unnatural fires, but he couldn't afford enough to do the job. To keep the grassland fuels low, he brought in cattle as what he called biotic mowing machines. I love that. And as fertilizers. As the trees grew, the cattle were removed, and the forest was restored. And working to reestablish rainforests in another area, he used an even more controversial method. And I'm quoting from the book, while monoculture and plantation logging are generally considered an anathema to conservation, monoculture suppresses biodiversity and is vulnerable to pests and disease, Jansen decided that plantations of a commercial deciduous tree, the Gamelia arborea, native to India and Southeast Asia, might play a role in fostering rainforest growth. While rainforest understory could gain a no hold in cleared pastures baked by the sun, the gamelia tree provided necessary shade, allowing it to regrow. The method was analogous to using the cattle, uh, and the gamelia could be eventually be subtracted, providing a tidy profit. Ever observant, Jansen had noticed that plantation growers often started their crops on old rainforest pastures. If not weeded, he wrote, these plantations develop a dense, shade-tolerant understory of rainforest shrubs, vines, and tree seedlings dispersed there by vertebrates. And so he was able to essentially take these spaces between existing blocks of rainforest using something that most people would consider to be a very unnatural process and, in fact, reestablish the rainforest connection between those areas. Conservationists uh, had planned on a large scale, but they had not simultaneously planned over time. Jansen's final element that he brought to his work that has really made it successful is the simple financial instrument of the endowment. Again, conservation organizations have not done that because it's a lot harder to raise money for an endowment than it is a physical object, a building, or a project. Jansen leveraged several large investments, including a debt-for-money swap with the government, to produce enough funding to maintain operations at this one area over time. Says Jansen, if I'd used that money from the debt swap and just spent it, I'd have a much finer park now and it would be dead. Jansen's currently, today, looking for one-half billion dollars to endow the entire Costa Rican park system. So this is a man of uh, great ambition. Uh, I would note that in a a recent uh, report of the Second Century Commission, which I have with me here, which was chartered to look at the future of the national park system, they came up with the same recommendation for our parks, the need to look at an endowment as a long-term stable stream of funding for the park system as a way of ensuring that you you maintain that operational uh, consistency. Jansen's methods have begun to be used by others. In Indonesia, an ongoing project to restore jungle-planted trees in pastures described as biological deserts, and then suppressed the destructive fires by ringing the project with a monoculture plantation of fire-resistant sugar palms, simultaneously insulating the regrowth from fires and producing a sweet liquid that can be tapped twice a day and which is currently producing revenue for about 650 families. 
One of the managers of a reserve in Africa noted, conservation is about managing people. It's not about managing wildlife. Clearly, retooling our world requires retooling our thinking. But one of the largest single problems is our economies, and the fact that our economies reward the exploitation of our natural resources, but not their conservation. Our modern conservation imperative, it seems, is to help those economies evolve before there's no longer any reason to do so. Caroline Fraser herself best summarizes the findings in the book, and I will quote her. Parks are not enough, not big enough, not connected enough, not always in the right places. The central premise of rewilding holds that while parks are necessary core reserves and should be as vigilantly protected from human encroachment as possible, according to biologists, they are only part of the solution. The vast majority of the world's biodiversity occurs outside of parks. To save it, conservation has to protect entire ecosystems, reducing fragmentation and isolation, which inevitably means rewilding across landscapes dotted with human populations and private property. Simply put, conservation is a necessity. If clean air, clean water, and access to adequate food are necessities, then conservation dedicated to securing them into perpetuity for people and wildlife is a basic requirement. It is not a luxury, not a business proposition, not an excuse for golf courses or intensive development. It is not neocolonialism. Certainly, conservation should be integrated with economic benefits and jobs, but the practice of conservation must be a top priority, and it should be managed not by marketers, but by biologists, park rangers, wildlife specialists, and in the end, communities themselves. Uh, I would close with T.S. Eliot, who said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Uh, so with that, I would stop and, I guess, take questions and comments. Um, I don't mean to be facetious, but in regards to population and density and the, sort of the end of your talk there, um, do you think wilding will ever get to the point where we're euthanizing tourists with cameras instead of bears? <laughs> what was that part about not wanting to be facetious? Uh, uh, one can only hope, I think, is probably the, the, the only adequate answer to that. Uh, uh, I think educating the public about our responsibilities to the natural world when we are at intersection with it is essential to almost everything, whether it's happening in a park, whether it's happening with this large-scale kind of stuff. Uh, the quote I had from Michael Soule is that the principal problem with rewilding is essentially imagining it, believing that, it, that it's something that I actually need to engage in. The, the purpose of the book in talking about biological diversity up front is to get people to understand that you better be thinking about this because, in fact, a lot of the systems that we depend on and expect to be there for us may or may not be there depending on how well we do. Don, your last quote talked about marketers not really being the, the solution, but but I want to take one small issue with that, which is, you know, we that keep, was actually Caroline Frazier's Well, um, the, 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 quote, the quote you pulled out. Um, I love marketers, really. Um, and the, re the reason I want to I, I address that besides being one, thank you, Will, um, um, is uh, it, there's this mindset that the, the broader America is being introduced to, which is this current generation, Generation Y, is, gonna, is not going to have a better life as defined by this consumerism that's supposed to drive our economy. 
And I actually think it's going to take marketers to actually educate people that it's, it, 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 it is quite possibly going to be a better life, not just by some economist definition of what a better life of the previous generation is. And I, I do think that that's a role that marketers can play in getting people to understand what, uh, what rewilding can do for, the, for this plant. Oh, I agree entirely. And, and, and however, most marketers are hired, right? So the person hiring the marketer has got to consider that the task. And so how do we get to that point? How do we get to where these things are, are so universally recognized as being essential to our well-being? And maybe better means different as far as the future goes, but that, that is actually a difference that people would seek and pursue. Yeah. Hey, Don. I just wanted to point out that uh, Smoky Mountain National Park and places like Sitico Creek Wilderness and Joyce Kilmer Slick Rock Wilderness are all really kind of examples of rewilding because all of these great parks and forest areas that we have in Tennessee and part of North Carolina were decimated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they've all regrown. I mean, most of the forests in Smoky Mountain National Park are 70 or 80 years old, mm -hmm. and we think of it as a pristine wilderness. It's all regrown. And I would argue that the same thing could probably be done over time in all the areas decimated by strip mining in Appalachia. And part of what you're talking about could be a, a sustained effort to get the communities in the coal fields as the coal industry eventually peters out to rewild those areas into forests uh, to try to someday, maybe take two or three hundred years, rival the forests that were there before colonialization. Yeah, this from a solicitor with the interior office over here, um, <laughs> who I know well. Hi, Jerry. Um, the, uh, it's absolutely the case. Uh, in the Smokies, though, the Smokies survived well because there also were some areas that were not decimated. There are biological reserves that were able to replenish with the surrounding national forest and some of the places in the Smokies. Uh, it depends on how total your devastation is. Restoration cannot replace preservation. But I, I think if we don't learn the lessons of Shenandoah and Smokies and, and Sitico and these other places, then we're missing a huge opportunity for our great-grandchildren and what we're going to be leaving them a century from now. We really need to, to look at places that have been used, abused, and maybe abandoned Cheap land, but has a lot of potential, has biological reserve close, could be set aside and, and connects in some way appropriately. Uh, uh, you know, we need to really start looking at all of the opportunities for that uh, kind of growth that we can. Yes, Ed. Your, um, your reference to the newspaper article on the uh, Jaguars, right, in uh, Venezuela. I think the same day or a day or two before or after, there was a story to, on uh, proposed <clears throat> Interstate 3. And I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that. I mean, I'm a business person, and my business friends would attack me for saying this, but I think it would be a disaster. Yeah. I just wonder what you would think. Well, it's interesting because it was originally proposed by uh, a congressman from North Georgia um, to connect Savannah and Augusta. And so it wasn't really part of the original Eisenhower set of interstates, you know, to connect the nation and end poverty forever. Uh, you know, free the hillbillies from their isolation. Uh, and, uh, but so that proposal went in and went through, and it, it 
And they said, well, let's connect Savannah with Knoxville, Tennessee. Or, as some people would like to say, potentially connect Savannah with Oak Ridge. (laughs) That's just something I heard. Uh, But the, the, the issue then becomes, once you get into North Georgia and you start getting into the mountains, how does one... I mean, try driving from Chattanooga to Charlotte. Have a good day. You know, I mean, we live in the mountains. This, this, it's the nature of the beast. Uh, I doubt seriously whether there's any way to get through those mountains without it being incredibly destructive. One of the potential routes is the, what is it called, Corridor K, that goes through the Okoy uh, area or around there. Another potential is to bring it right through the Topoka property, uh, that a number of us, thank you, Jerry, uh, worked really hard to try to help get preserved next to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. My involvement will be if they try to choose that alternative, I'm going to really be going after it. Uh, other, there's lots of other people. In fact, there is an organization called the Stop I3 Coalition uh, of, of groups that are working to try to uh, prevent that. There have been something like 13 counties in western North Carolina and North Georgia that have passed county-wide resolutions opposing it. So uh, who knows where it will go from here. But, yeah, I think it's a pretty bad idea. Thank you very much. I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.